Welcome to the State of Developer Education, a podcast by Major League Hacking. We explore how technical leaders are creatively tackling the developer education gap to help prepare the next generation of technologists for the real world and build businesses that can adapt to any changes in the technology ecosystem. I'm your host, John Gottfried. Welcome back to the State of Developer Education. We are so excited for this episode to have Micah Smith, who is the VP of Community and Learning at Automation Anywhere. Welcome to the show. How are you doing today? I'm great. Super happy to be here. I'm a listener and now a contributor. Love to hear it. So as you probably know, I start with all of my guests going back in time to hear your origin story. So how did you get started with tech and end up where you are today? So I'm like a slumdog millionaire story to end up where I am right now. I first out of college, graduated with a degree in business and took a job as a technical instructor with EMC, working on a product called Input Excel or Captiva. So this was a document scanning platform. And it's really intimidating when you're a technical instructor and the longest presentation you've given in college is like five minutes and it's on something totally unrelated. And all of a sudden, you're being asked to speak for like eight hours a day. So I jumped into that and immediately got in way over my head. My very first course I was supposed to teach is a 40-hour course on developing on this Captiva platform. I was supposed to co-deliver it. And the guy that I was delivering it with had his wife go into labor after the very first day. So I had to deliver days two through five all by myself. And it was a miserable, sweaty experience where I'm mostly reading slides. But It taught me a lot about finding my voice, especially when doing presentations, learning how to hit on the most important things for people, and really how to read a room, how to understand how content was connecting with people. So from there, I jumped over to government contracting, which is the obvious next step. I actually was running the document automation program for the records management division of the FBI. And so I went there, worked with them for quite a while, which was really ironic because I had a lot of people from the FBI go to my courses, and then I ended up working for them for a couple of years. So I did that. And this was really important because before I was talking about this software and how to use it and how to implement it in theory, but then I got hands-on with how to implement it and how to do this in reality and how to meet the requirements of what your stakeholders are looking for, how to manage a system in production, how to do updates and stuff like that. It was great experience and we were really a small team getting a lot done, but I wanted to really grow in the way that I was doing like proper SDLC. We were just kind of delivering and pushing it out real quick. So I moved on to TIAA where I led their document imaging platform and did the same thing, but in a much more rigorous release management process with a proper SDLC. So we learned a lot of those best practices from development to QA to then sign-offs and delivery. And after doing that for a couple of years, I led the automation program at TIAA, where we implemented Automation Anywhere, among other technologies, to automate the needs of the organization. And so that led me into working for Automation Anywhere directly. And I'll be honest, they took a huge chance on me. I had no experience doing DevRel. I still don't know anyone personally who does DevRel. So I didn't know what I was doing, and I jumped into it. And it's been an absolute blast. And that was uh, a little over four years ago. And I've been doing DevRel stuff ever since. And it's been an absolute great time and something I've really enjoyed. That's fantastic. I'd love to hear a little bit more about that switch from 
EMC to working directly with the FBI. I know that a lot of folks I talk to perceive a pretty big disconnect between what educators know and what doers know, for lack of a better term. What were some of the big surprises for you making that switch? Yeah, I mean, because you're an educator, first off, everyone is looking to you for every single answer for everything, right? Like I'm supposed to be the full documentation and I know everything about this platform. Fortunately, I knew a whole lot because I had been teaching it for three plus years and I dealt with a lot of customer issues and things like that. So I was pretty familiar with that. I think some of the biggest things that changed for me were that now all of a sudden you're expected to be responsible for a lot more. It's not just how do you implement this piece of software, but how do you implement that as long as you're customizing the stuff that goes before it and the stuff that goes after it. And I also ended up having to write some like complementary pieces of software that would work with the content we were doing. So I'll just give a brief overview. When you're doing document automation, you're trying to capture the images. So we would use these really big high-speed scanners that would capture thousands of images an hour. You would then classify it to try to identify what this thing is. You're going to fix the results of that classification and something we would call like classification edit. You would extract, so you're doing some level of OCR on those documents. Then you're doing a validation where you're either systematically and or manually validating some data that you've extracted. And then it's a delivery part. But on the ends of that, what the FBI is doing with these documents is they're using it for building a case on someone or doing a FOIA request, which is a Freedom of Information Act. And so there are things that they need to do to be able to easily search through all of that content to make sense of it easily. And so I'm having to, you know, not only worry about how do we get this scanning thing working and going end to end, but now I'm also having to support some of the scanners, support the desktops that are running all of this stuff, help people who are doing the indexing or doing the classification edit if their machines are screwing up. So there's a lot of those kind of things that kind of came up in between, but it was a killer learning experience and a great team to work with. And it was honestly, like I said, those kind of things have contributed to what I'm doing today and how I've been able to be effective in this role. It's super interesting because I feel like a lot of software engineers envision people going through processes that are really like specific and well thought out. Like if I upload a document to Google Docs, there's a whole processing workflow that happens to be able to search that and deal with it. But like, I would imagine that the FBI, you're dealing with massive boxes of paper that have to be digitized and indexed. and that's very, very different because there's a chaos to it that you can't really control, right? So you probably have to be able to deal with a lot of variability and like quality control issues. And and, I mean, I'm just guessing here, but like, I feel like that would make a lot of engineers really uncomfortable with the amount of chaos that's involved with it. That's right. I mean, it was constantly chaotic because they had an entire warehouse of all of these documents. And that warehouse is constantly seeing turnover because there's new cases, new investigations going on. And so they're bringing in new documents, new boxes, and each case may be 100 different banker boxes of documents that you have to go through. And so that on one hand, but then also making sure that we can capture all of that media on the back end and it's searchable and it's usable and the content actually works. But then on top of all of that is this layer of like, we can't let spilled content out of the building. Mm -hmm. So we have to identify if a document is secret or top secret or even beyond that. And so we're writing specialized software to go and like scan all of these documents and look for certain keywords and try to identify where there are 
classified documents so that we can automatically mark those for review to make sure they don't make it outside the building. And so, yeah, there's a lot of chaos going on and a lot of layers of complexity that you have to take into consideration. So that was a good transition because I knew the core software really well. I just had to learn the processes that went around it and then learn how it's actually being used in implementation. And then it kind of pushed me to learn more .NET so that I was able to create some of this complementary software that they use for scanning documents. So going forward a little bit, you mentioned that when you started at Automation Anywhere, you didn't really have a background in DevRel. And I think for a lot of people, their first DevRel job is sort of sight unseen. Like there's no degree in DevRel. Maybe there's a boot camp. I mean, maybe there's one. When you got into that role, how did you first approach it? Like, what were you tasked with doing? And sort of what resources did you have at your disposal to get up to speed? I would say, admittedly, maybe the people who hired me didn't know exactly what DevRel was either. That's so not that's the bad thing. I think, yeah, yeah, we were still trying to figure all of this out together, right? Yep. And so I think one of the first things that I was told to focus on is trying to connect with tech influencers on Twitter and these different social media platforms. And to be honest, like that fell fat on its face really quickly, right? Because people can sense when you're reaching out to them just because you're looking for some kind of like bump or whatever, like you're trying to use that. And to be honest, like I'm not even that active on Twitter to start with. So it didn't always feel like a super genuous way to connect with people. What that shifted to is more connecting with our actual developers who we knew were already using our software, understanding what they liked, understanding where they were struggling, and then trying to create some connections and fill some gaps there. Because we had educational content, we had some tutorials, but they were light. So really, it started with just creating some really interesting tutorial slash instructional content. And all of this was going on at the same time that I was really into Dr. Disrespect. So I was like watching some game streaming after work and things like that. And I was like, hey, we could make building automations much more entertaining if we did something like this guy's doing. Now, he's obviously doing a lot of stuff that probably you don't want to replicate in a corporate environment. But if you can make it slightly entertaining, tell a joke every once in a while, be on screen, be vulnerable, show when stuff is working, show when stuff isn't working. So I started that approach. And so basically, I did that same like, I'm going to put myself on a green screen at the bottom right hand corner of the screen, I'm going to show you my full desktop. And I'm going to do full builds. And I'm going to show you from start to finish exactly how to use this. And so remember, I was a customer before I came to Automation Anywhere. And I was really focused on building the kind of content that I wish I'd had access to when I was learning all of this stuff. I had some documentation. There was maybe one tutorial I found, but there wasn't a whole lot available that like, hey, if I don't know a whole lot, how am I going to upskill in this particular platform? And so I was creating the kind of stuff that I wish we had when I was learning to start with. That's great. One thing I'd like to kind of clarify before we go further what does a developer mean in the world of automation anywhere? Because I know that like RPA and a typical developer platform that has like an API or something are fairly different in scope, right? And I would imagine the persona of the person using it might be slightly different too. So how do you think about like software engineers, people using automation software, the Venn diagram, like the actual breakdown of personas? 
Well, RPA is a bad word for us now. Automation Anywhere is an AI-powered process automation company. Great point. So when we're talking about developers on an automation platform, especially one that's designed to be drag and drop, really friendly user interface, you're doing all of your development in a web UI, you have a huge range of developers. So you have some people who are like, their background is they started doing some Excel stuff and they're kind of good at Excel macros. To people who are full stack web developers and they've got experience with working with APIs and these kind of things. So we have to try to appeal to a broad range of users. Now, we recognize that some users are only going to take it so far. And so specifically with Automation Anywhere, one of the nice things that is easy for us to communicate is that there are over 400 actions that are out of box available to you. So if you want to launch Google Chrome and then click a button and then open an Excel spreadsheet, like you can do all of that stuff without doing any traditional coding. You don't have to worry about syntax issues or anything like that. You can do all of that with just the drag and drop operations and things like that. For kind of the middle tier, I would say you do have the ability to do all of that stuff. Plus, you can add in a JavaScript, VB scripts, Python scripts. You can execute all of that directly within the platform as well. So I might open a web page. I might download a file. I might parse that file using Python and then take some action to store it in an FTP server or something like that, right? So that would be like the middle tier. And then at the high end, I would say that's when you're starting to think about using our package SDK to create your own custom actions and custom packages. And so when it comes to DevRel, I have to be able to create content for all of those people, right? So we need to make sure we're teaching people how to use that package SDK, what they can do with it, some of the interesting things you can build using that package SDK, showing a full build. But then on the other side, we would consider someone more like a citizen developer who's just learning all of these capabilities. We want to make sure creating content for them as well. So there's a lot of different personas that we're concerned with. And I think that's really important. I've heard a couple of people on your previous podcast episodes talk about having trouble with some of the metrics of like, hey, DevRel, how do I measure success here? And I think you have to look at it at the end of the day and say, you know what? We all work for a software company. And my company's success is largely based on being able to sell licenses and sell software and make customers really successful. So in that lens, I'm looking at it to say, all right, we've got some developers who are citizen developers. We got some people who are still kind of learning. We got people who are really advanced. And then around all of that, we've got someone like an automation leader who's essentially running that entire program of automation at that customer. And that's what I was doing previously. So how do we not only evangelize for the roles that are hands-on with our platform, but also create materials for those that are essentially running a program? So I need to be able to successfully implement automation program at my organization. There's a lot I need to think about, not only from a security and technical perspective, but like, how do I evangelize so that people know about what we're doing and our capabilities? What are the KPIs or metrics that I need to worry about? How am I communicating this to my executive leadership team? Because if I tell them, we just created 10 bots, they're going to tell me like, no one knows what you're talking about and go back to the IT department. So I need to be able to communicate that in an effective way. And so part of it is teaching automation leaders how to talk about a program and how to run an actual program where you're expanding and growing your automation blueprint. This might be a weird question, but it's kind of a blind spot for me. Would an automation leader report into a CTO? Like what department does that typically fall under? 
it typically would be in IT. It varies by organization, but usually they would roll up to a CTO within the organization. Now, depending on how that's been implemented within the organization, you might see like small bodies of power outside of that. So one thing that we talk about is you can do federated development, which means that you might have a centralized COE that's responsible for my best practices, my standards, what does change management look like, stuff like that. But then it might have federated teams throughout the organization that are responsible for identifying, prioritizing, and then building their own automation opportunities. And so we're kind of in that case, instead of the, you know, typically in enterprise software, it's like, this is my platform. If you want to build on it, you got to come through me. You got to fund my team. We prioritize everything. With a federation model like that, you're essentially saying, you guys can prioritize whatever you want. You just have to build it and maintain it. And we'll set the standards for how that works. And usually support is some kind of shared function at that point. But that's enabling people within the organization to use this software to build their own automations and to meet their own needs. And it's a really interesting way for organizations to really spread the use of this and expand their automation blueprint. What you're describing sounds somewhat similar to how a lot of people describe the promise of AI for non-developers. Like I always hear like, oh, like in five to 10 years, software engineer roles will look very different because the average person in, I don't know, like an accounting team can have a AI tool generate a solution for them. And I know you mentioned earlier that like, you're a, what was it, like AI-powered process automation tool, I think? Very good. Nailed it. Yeah. So where does AI fit into the vision of what you're describing? Because it sounds like what you're describing is already empowering people outside of traditional engineering teams. Yeah, it absolutely is. And just like I talked about, someone can use all these actions, build their own automation, things like that. There is an, an AI layer on top of all of that. And there's a couple of ways that that can come into play. First off, we've got those connections to any popular large language model. So if you want to do something within your automation to be able to validate some data or make a decision on an email from a customer, you can do those kind of things. But this is being built in in a lot of other layers as well. So we're working on something right now that'll be releasing, I don't know when this podcast comes out, but sometime early 2024 where you'll be able to describe in normal text what you're looking to build and the automation will build itself for you. And obviously that's gonna continue to mature over the next couple of years with the complexity of automations that it can build and how that works. But we're moving to that point where people can start to describe the kinds of automations that they wanna build and those can be built. There's a lot of other things that have been traditional problems with an automation platform that we're solving with AI. So for example, if I created an automation that's supposed to enter a username, enter a password, and then click submit on a login page, that might work today. But if that page has some changes, and now the DOMX path for all of these objects has moved around, my automation has become somewhat fragile. And so we've built something that enables you to have some resiliency, where we're actually using AI to try to understand where that object has moved so that your automation can automatically be updated and still work even in the face of application changes. Because when you're working with a SaaS-based application, you don't necessarily always know that like, hey, we decided to move that login page to the left side of the page instead of the right. And so that would break a traditional automation. But 
with some of these new resiliency capabilities, it will be able to automatically kind of find where those new buttons are and move forward in either case. So some of that stuff is where AI comes into play. I'd also say that as we do things like the discovery of new processes within an organization, you can have these agents installed on people's machines. It kind of keeps track of the types of things that they're doing and then tries to use AI to make sense of all of that to identify what might be good use cases for automation, as well as saying like, hey, John does a process one way, Micah does it another way. Why are we doing it differently? And is it a training issue? Does one of them have this like this key that the other one didn't know about and is moving more efficiently? So even when it comes to process optimization, we're able to identify those kind of things with AI as well. That's super interesting. The resiliency one really hits home for me because I've built so many web scrapers and tools and like all that sort of stuff. And even if it's scraping your own internal stuff, some designer moves something around and like there's not a process to communicate those changes to everyone using it. Like yeah. suddenly it breaks everything. That's really interesting. I've never even thought about that as like one of the applications of AI, but it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So to pilot that idea, we actually built that into our bot games. Hmm. And I know this is something you and I said we we're going to talk about, but yeah. bot games are these developer events that we've created to get people hands on with our software and using it in different ways. And essentially what we're doing through these bot games events are teaching people how to build different solutions or approach different problems. And for each bot games event that we create, you basically launch a page and it starts a timer. And you have some challenge you have to complete on that page. And it's really your automation has some challenge to complete. And then at the end, you hit submit and we generate a score to say how accurate you were in completing whatever that challenge was and what your time was. So we're capturing all of those things. And it's kind of a gamification of learning, really, right? I'm supposed to build this thing to meet this need and it's going to time me the whole way. We built one of those pages around this resiliency concept so that you download a spreadsheet you're supposed to enter all customer details. It's like 10 fields for 10 different customers. Mm -hmm. Every time you hit submit, the order of the fields moves around on the page. But that in itself isn't that hard to deal with, right? What we also did was add a randomized number of spans and divs in between the header for a field and where the field actually shows up. So not only are all of the fields moving around on the page, but we're also randomizing this number of spans and divs to really make it look like the path is totally different every single time. We're also randomizing the object ID. So every single time the page hits a submit, you're going to get a new object ID. So it's a really difficult problem to solve outside of using these AI capabilities. And so we were teaching people how to do this within error handling. And that led to us now building it into the product so you don't have to do all the error handling stuff. It's just going to do it automatically for you. That's really cool. So with bot games, I love the concept of learning as a game, right? Or games as an educational experience. When you first started doing this, like, what were some of the assumptions that you had going into it? And how did those play out? I honestly had no idea how competitive people would get. I thought like maybe a couple people will try this and they'll think it's funny and then maybe it'll work, maybe it won't. And so I was building all these bot games challenges myself for our first couple bot games events. And they were really simple ones. It was like log into this page, hit submit, we capture your time. And then another one was like download a spreadsheet, 
enter customer data into this CRM, and then hit submit. So they were pretty simple to start off with, but we saw that people immediately got super competitive with them. And that started to make it more fun for me because I saw how people are getting really competitive. And what I really liked about it was that there's the way that I would think to tell you how to solve that problem. But then there's like 15 other ways that people in our developer community will come up with trying to solve it. So if we take something of just filling a web form and hitting submit over and over, right? We could use our recorder where you're going to clone every single object on that page and fill it out. And that would work. And that's going to be super reliable. And you know it's going to work. But you could also do it with keystroke entry where you enter into that first field, enter the data tab, enter the data tab, enter the data, and you start to fill it that way. And that's another way that you could do it. You could do it with Selenium. And you could do the whole thing in Selenium and just a different approach to the same kind of recorder concept. You could write the entire thing in JavaScript and you could just have JavaScript take care of all of it and it would go super, super fast. And so the nice thing about it is we've created one challenge and now there's like 10 different ways to solve it. And so you see someone else who posts a score that's like five seconds faster than yours. And now you're like baffled. And it's really because they're using different tools. They're trying the keystroke approach. They're trying the JavaScript approach, all of which you can do within the Automation Anywhere platform. And all of those things have an appropriate time and place of where they can and should be used. But it brings up really interesting discussion points of saying like, what's the best way to build this? What's going to be the most reliable? And then what's the blazingly fastest? Like, what's the one you can try? But hey, your JavaScript executed before the page actually loaded. And so like now you got a zero. So it's a fun thing to do to get people excited about it. And really, it moved from like just some really basic stuff to show off how our platform works to real world use cases that would get people excited about the different ways that they can use our software. So the toughest one I built before I retired and had other people start to build these things is I built one around scanning for stolen credit card numbers. If you work in cybersecurity for a large bank, part of your role is to like go out on the dark web, find credit card dumps and see if they are your customers so that you can proactively cancel and reissue those cards. So I built a fake website that would have a bunch of credit card data on it. You would go there, you would scrape this credit card dump from, I think we called it Ryan's Club or something like that, which is very close to the real place that you would find some of these things. And you were supposed to scrape all the stolen credit card numbers and then match that to a database to see if it matches any of your customers. But the interesting thing there is like when they post a credit card dump, they're not putting all the numbers up for free. They're giving you partial pieces of data, right? So you've got like a couple characters of the last name. You've got a couple characters for their zip code and you've got a couple characters for the last four of the actual card and the card type maybe. So between that data, can you triangulate to figure out, is this actually one of our customers? Can you mark that customer as needs to cancel this card and then reissue it? So that's a realistic use case of using automation to solve a problem. We build that into a bot games challenge. So now everyone is having to learn how to beef up the way that they do their SQL. They're having to worry about pagination, how to scrape lots and lots of data, how to maintain partial data do that SQL lookup, find if it's a match. I think we had an Excel spreadsheet that you were supposed to update for everyone who was supposed to be canceled. So there's a couple of different applications all live at once. And again, the whole thing is being timed and scored. So it really made the gamification part of that fun. 
but also showed a realistic use case of where automation can be used. Well, what did people win for doing these? So we didn't go so far as to have like first, second, and third place. We do in our live events when we do them like at our Imagine and stuff like that. We've got a scoreboard and everything and we keep that going. For people who are just doing it online, because it would take forever for us to validate so many scores, we just send out swag. We'll send out t-shirts, stickers, and stuff like that for people who are participating. And so that in part has been a fun way why people like to do it. But the competition, people get really competitive about it. And they'll send me messages on LinkedIn. Like, I think this person's cheating. Can you look into it? Like, all right, I'll talk to them. But like, no one's winning this grand prize thing, right? Like, we're all just getting shirts. So yeah, the stakes uh, aren't that high. Yeah, but I mean, that's a huge motivator for people. And it's, you know, working in IT and working with developers, like having a shirt, having something with like branding, you earned it. You can't just buy one of these things. Like all of those things combined to make a really interesting and fun experience for developers. Yeah. Years ago, I did a capture the flag challenge that Stripe put on. And I don't think I was even in like the top 30% of finishers, but like I got this t-shirt as a thank you for finishing it. And it's still to this day, like I wear it like 10 years later. So I think people underestimate the value of swag like that, especially earned swag. Yeah, uh, it's really, really meaningful. See, um, and Stripe paid like 15 bucks for that. And you're still talking yeah. about it. So it was okay. a great deal for them. And, and a great experience. Like it was very fun. When you think about like the type of person that does bot games, I'm curious, like what you saw in terms of participation, right? You talked about citizen developers. Obviously, you all have a big enterprise customer base. Did you get all types engaging with these games? Was it a particular type of person? Who did it? Yeah, so it really depends on the bot games that we're doing, right? We actually just did one last week that was a bot games season of giving edition where we were getting people who had gone through what we called a bot camp, which was basically like a four week, not terribly intensive, two hours a week to learn from nothing from automation anywhere to at least being able to build your first kind of automations. And that was targeted for citizen developers. So we've done some of these where they're specific for a particular persona that we talked about last time was for citizen developers. So it was an easier challenge. And we designed it so that those citizen developers could complete it. Now, we get them completing it. We also get a ton of regular traditional developers that have a ton of experience that just want to put down some insane time on a really easy challenge. As we get to the more complex challenges, we do see that people start to fade out a bit. And so at this point, I think have about 15 of these. We keep them all on our challenges page. So we've got a whole collection. We've got them listed by their complexity. So you can kind of go through there and see where you are as a developer. Hey, I tapped out at about the three star one. And so I know I have some things to work on. But we see a huge range of people participating. A lot of enterprise customers are participating. A lot of consultants are participating. And a lot of Automation Anywhere partners are participating. So depending on who we're designing the challenges for really is who's the target audience. The developers show up either way, though. If it's an easy challenge or a really hard one, you're going to see the same kind of traditional developers that have a lot of experience that do this day in and day out. They're going to show up and they're going to crush these challenges. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And part of the reason I ask is like, you call it bot games, right? And I do think that there is sometimes a perception that like enterprise developers don't gravitate towards fun things like that which I think is incorrect, but I think 
a lot of times DevRel teams are pushed to make content that is like for the enterprise or for the hobbyist. But there's probably way more crossover than a lot of people would imagine because like if someone's a developer, they probably just enjoy the practice of it above anything else. Yeah, well, I mean, like I said, getting back to I had no experience doing DevRel. So it's been just like, what are the fun things that seem like they get people engaged? We do create stuff that are designed for any kind of developer, but we want to make it fun no matter what, right? Just because you work in an enterprise doesn't mean that you like to watch paint dry for fun. So we try to create these like fun experiences for people regardless. Now, I think the real question, if you're in DevRel and you're saying, okay, well, what's the KPI for that, right? How do you measure success with that kind of program? And Number one, it's about participation. We want to make sure we've got lots of people engaged with this. We want to see what kind of customers are doing it. Is it our top customers? Is it like these random customers that we don't even have? Is it our competitors that are doing it, right? Like who's actually participating in this stuff? And then what's the benefit for them? And in most cases, the benefit is getting them to learn something new, a new capability, a new feature that we've just released. So when it came to that generative AI challenge I was talking about with the automation resiliency, we were showing off our new package that you could use with OpenAI. This was back in May. So it was primarily OpenAI was the main game in town at that point. And we were showing off that you could use OpenAI with Automation Anywhere, and it was a seamless experience. So we're using these as a tool to basically get you to try out some of our newest capabilities. We'll do one in the spring that's about document automation in Gen AI. So how can I parse data from an unstructured document? where it's not this like first name goes here, last name here, right? It's like a legal contract and the format might be totally different between two of them. And so how do I extract the data from that? And it's really a great tool for us to get people to try out, get hands on and be thinking about the different ways that they can use our software and solve real problems. So the more that we can show people that kind of stuff, the better. And that's really been the genesis of why our bot games events have been so successful, because we're keeping those things in mind. Who's doing it? Who do they represent? And what are we actually showing them as a part of this? That makes a lot of sense. I switch gears a little bit. Well, one thing I was curious about is I noticed that you have been doing developer relations for the vast majority of your time at Automation Anywhere. And then recently, you got, I think, promoted to this role of VP of Community and Learning, does DevRel fall under community and learning? Is this a different team? Because like when I was doing background research, like to me, there's a fairly, I don't want to say linear, but like there's a progression of like education and content that you built, right? And like you were doing it yourself to start with, with those videos. And then you started building it into programs. And then I imagine managing teams of people that did that. And now it's this community and learning team. How did that all kind of coalesce? Yeah, well, so I will say it does fit under community and learning at Automation Anywhere. Where I think this really marries together well is that I've recently taken over how we do developer education and all of our learning content. So we have Automation Anywhere University. It's a great resource for free training, things like that. In the last four or five months, we've totally revamped the training that's been there. It moved from more of like PowerPoints and theory and teaching you how to think about things to everything is exercise based. Everything is hands on short form videos. Every single video, there's an exercise that you're doing that you're supposed to follow along with us. And so we did that very intentionally because every time we've been through mandatory training, it feels like the former. 
But every time you've been through some training that's memorable and you actually learn something, you've been hands-on, you've been touching the software, you've been learning to solve problems the whole way through. So that married with the things that we're doing with our DevRel experiences, from creating these bot games events to being able to go to Imagine and interface with our community, those things all really connect well. The thing that I think about is when we're doing our training, we want to teach you what we're calling automation skill stacking, which is I'm going to teach you these five or six distinct skills, and then I'm going to give you a challenge. And in that challenge, you're supposed to put all of those skills together. Nothing feels worse than going through a bunch of training and then getting to the point of trying to implement something and realizing you have zero chance of being able to solve any kind of problem. I think they call that like tutorial hell, where all I've done is tutorials and I can't actually solve a real problem. So what we do is introduce all of these individual skills, five or six of them, we give you a challenge. And you're supposed to solve that challenge with the five skills you just learned. And then we move on and we stack on top of that. And so that's what we've been doing from an education standpoint. That's very similar to the kinds of bot games challenges that we're introducing and the way that we're getting people involved with those bot games challenges to be able to solve problems and learn new things. All of that kind of rolls up into our Automation Anywhere community. Our community is essentially built on developers and users and people who have questions and people who are exploring and people who are kicking the tires. And so all of that really fits together well. How do we measure someone's experience or their journey from the first time they sign up for one of our courses to when they get certified to when they're contributing to our forums to when they're completing a bot games challenge? So my role now is I really want to understand how all of those things fit together and where we have gaps and where we have points where people are falling off. Hey, everyone who takes this one course, they immediately stop taking it and stop taking anything else. Cool. I want to know that because we need to re-record that course or we need to understand what about that is making people drop off. And so I think the purview that I have now gives me that perspective to be able to say, what does that journey look like from the first time someone's heard about Automation Anywhere and taking a look at our learning or taking a look at our forums to being a part of Bot Games, being a contributor back to our community and really being engaged with what we're trying to do. Yeah. That library of content you're creating, I would imagine, is a fairly large volume of videos and written content. What processes do you use to keep them up to date? Because a lot of DevRel people like struggle with this problem of like, I created this incredible video and then the API changes and I have to re-record everything. Yeah, so that's part of the reason that we're keeping them, like I said, very skill specific so that instead of me recording an hour video and then I could go back and fix like, minute 15 and minute 25, it's on a very specific topic. So if that one topic changes, I might have to record that one video again. The other thing I would say is that we have a really small team doing all of this stuff. We're using generative AI quite a bit in the process of not only creating this learning material, but then also helping us along the way. So like we're using OpenAI's Whisper to do SRT files for all of our training so that we've got like really good quality closed captioning for every single video. And you can really tune it quite a bit to say like, oh, well, I only want no more than 34 characters on screen at a single time because of the way the page lays out and people's screens and stuff like that. So we've used a lot of that kind of stuff to help us accelerate the process of moving from we have an idea for a course to full delivery. When it comes to actually maintaining things, I mean, it's always going to be a challenge with a SaaS-based application that like, 
hey, this API changed, this thing changed. But by doing these shorter form content pieces, that's been our approach so far to try to like minimize the exposure we have for a specific update. And yeah, if we have to record a single course over, I look at that as being like better than having to record a series of courses that are all built on top of each other, building one project. So who knows how well that's going to work long term. We're five months into this, but that's my theory right now. And that's what we're going with. I think it's a solid theory. So we have a couple of minutes left here. I'd like to end on some kind of like bigger picture philosophical notes. We talked a little bit earlier about how AI is changing, you know, and evolving the product and what you all do. What is your sort of like personal guess of how AI might change engineers? And I ask that because you're at this interesting intersection of like traditional engineers, automation experts, and there's already a little bit of a blurred line there of like, who's doing what? Where do you think AI is taking the field? Yeah, it's a real challenge for sure. I mean, I think developers will be largely describing what they want to create and kind of putting those pieces together as opposed to just building stuff from scratch going forward. I think a challenge in the future is going to be that like you build this thing using AI, I build this thing using AI. Someone has to put those things together, right? And right now, AI hasn't been great at being able to say, here's my code base from project A, here's my code base from project B, find the points of intersection and build one big project. We haven't been there yet. It probably will get there. I don't doubt that. But right now, I think assembling and being able to maintain things like that will be really important for developers to focus on. I'm also encouraging developers to embrace generative AI and AI as much as possible, right? You can't just stick your head in your in the sand in this one and be like, I'm not going to worry about it. I'm just going to keep coding and doing what I do. Like that's going to unfortunately pass you by really quickly. So become AI enabled. Think about how to solve problems using AI, not only your own problems, but the problems for your business stakeholders, the problems for the people that you're ultimately delivering for. Another huge thing for people specifically in automation is like, it's really important to have that connection with your business stakeholders. You don't want to be just a guy or a girl who's in a closet someplace coding and just, you know, writing lines and no one knows about what you're doing and what your contributions are. You want to really identify what is your connection to not only that business stakeholder, but then also the business vision of your senior leadership so that you have this personal connection to the goals of the organization. That's going to make sure that you've got a clear connection to what you're doing and why it matters. And again, the AI layer on all of that is like, okay, my business stakeholder has asked for X. I could deliver X, but I could also deliver X plus Y, which they didn't even think to ask about. And so that's where I'm really challenging a lot of developers to be thinking about AI of like, okay, how can I meet their needs? But how can I meet their needs and maybe even go beyond that to deliver something that they hadn't even thought to ask about? Yeah, I think that's really powerful. It actually reminds me of a conversation I was having with a friend recently, where for a long time, developers have been almost like this secret cabal, where like requests go in one end and some kind of implementation comes out the other end. But the actual stakeholder who's making the request doesn't have a lot of control over the implementation or output. And obviously, organizations that do product development well have a lot of alignment there. But there's still kind of a, a wall in between. And my friend who, who's a you know engineering leader was saying that 
the most immediate thing that's going to happen here is that wall is going to go away to nothing because now your non-technical like CMO or something can build a prototype of the thing they're requesting and show you exactly what they want and have a lot more control over sort of what that output looks like. Yeah, but I think that's also important for, like you said, the cabal to be more visible and to have some kind of voice because you don't want to just be a cog in a larger machine. You want to have some purpose. You want to have some connection to the business, to the stakeholders. It doesn't mean you have to necessarily be out marketing yourself everywhere, but make yourself known, network within the organization, let people know what you're doing. As a developer, that's super important to being able to progress your career. If you want to stay in development, great. You want to move into leadership or management or things like that. Those are cool things too. But you need to learn some of those soft skills beyond just how do I implement the following software technology? Yeah, the relations part of developer relations. That's the part I'm still working on. (laughs) I like to end every episode with some like shout outs and kind of external call outs. Outside of automation anywhere, are there any like content creators or educators that you really kind of like follow and respect a lot? There's a guy named Chris McCaskill. You know him? I've heard the name before. I don't know him personally. He's probably like the godfather of DevRel. So Chris McCaskill, he was at General Magic, which Mm. essentially developed what was the iPhone way before the iPhone became a thing. They have an excellent documentary that I watched recently about this. And it's super cool to see all these people who are like way, way, way ahead of their time in developing things. He has a YouTube channel called Plant Chompers, where he advocates for a vegan lifestyle. He's a really interesting guy. I find his videos really interesting. His research is interesting. So he's the kind of guy who I would for sure want to go like have a lunch with if I'm ever going to cross paths with him because he's very well spoken, very well thought. I love the quality of his videos. As someone who's creating a lot of videos themselves, you learn to have a certain appreciation for the way that someone can do cuts and camera and things like that. So super interesting guy. He's the guy I would always be geeked out to hang out with. But like I said, I didn't really have a blueprint for DevRel. So I always thought the stuff that some of these other companies were doing was cool, but I didn't necessarily have a something to copy off of, unfortunately. I mean, sometimes that's good, though. You're developing a strategy and and a view of the world without having too much bias. Yeah. But yeah, that's fantastic. I've never heard of Chris's YouTube channel, but I did see the General Magic documentary a couple of years ago, and it was fascinating, like very, very predictive, I think, of where a lot of things went. Yeah. The only company I would shout out is Twilio. I have no relation to them. They have some of the best DevRel stuff I've ever seen. I don't know if you saw, they have like some kind of journey game through their documentation, like just world-class. I didn't get to go through all of it, but I was really impressed with a lot of that stuff. And I found their documentation pretty easy to understand too. Yeah, Twilio is, I mean, they've done a lot of really incredible stuff. I I worked there like more than a decade ago now. And so I can't take credit for like anything they've done recently, (laughs) but I know a lot of people who built those kinds of things. And Twilio Quest, which is what you're referring to. That's right, yeah. I believe it's all open source now, which is really cool. So I've seen companies adapting it for other use cases. And if anyone listening hasn't played it, it's kind of a 8-bit RPG to teach you APIs. Really, really fascinating stuff. Uh, originally created by Kevin Winery, who I worked there with. I actually don't remember what he's up to now, but smart guy. 
Very cool. Yeah, I was blown away by that. Yeah, it's very impressive. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Micah. This has been a fascinating episode. Really enjoyed the conversation. We'll include links to your work and places to find what you're doing at Automation Anywhere. But I hope everyone enjoyed listening and will subscribe for more. But yeah, happy hacking. The State of Developer Education is brought to you by Major League Hacking. To find out more about Major League Hacking and how we're educating the next generation of developers and helping the world's leading companies reach them, visit sponsor.mlh.io. And make sure to search for developer education in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen, and click like and subscribe so that you don't miss any future episodes. And if you like it, please don't forget to leave a review, and we'll give you a shout-out on a future podcast. On behalf of the team here at Major League Hacking, thanks for listening and helping us empower the next generation of technologists. Happy hacking! Happy hacking!